This is the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we're talking to Dr. Ted Gallen Carpenter, who is a senior fellow in Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of 12 books and more than 800 articles. We'll be discussing U.S. foreign policy, America's tendency to support authoritarian governments over the years, NATO, North Korea, and the new Monroe Doctrine in Latin America, if we can get to all of those topics. Uh, thank you for coming on the program, Dr. Carpenter. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Now, I just finished your latest book, Gullible Superpower, U.S. Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic uh, Movements. And you write that America often justifies and equates uh, supporting questionable rebels against authoritarian regimes with spreading democracy, a sort of ends justifies the means uh, approach. And in each chapter of your book, you devoted to a d different case, how in Afghanistan, we supported radical Islamists who later went on to attack uh, the U.S., in Angola, uh, we supported a cult of personality who turned out to be a socialist, I believe, and Washington becoming the personal air force of the criminal Kosovo Liberation Army in Serbia. So, you know, I think your book complements other books such as Stephen Kinzer's Overthrow. So could you tell us a little bit more about the premise of gullible superpower and what you were uh, trying to get at? The uh, conventional wisdom uh for the most part, has been that uh, U.S. policymakers are very, very cynical. Uh, they will use moral justifications to cover uh, far more mundane motives for U.S. foreign policy. So, as I describe in an earlier book, uh, Perilous Partners, the U.S. has often supported thoroughly thuggish uh, authoritarian regimes and yet portrayed them as members of the free world. This was especially prominent during the Cold War. But this book looks at the, uh, the opposite tendency of some officials uh, to believe their own propaganda when they were lobbied by uh, supposedly democratic foreign political movements to support their efforts to overthrow uh, authoritarian governments, especially unfriendly authoritarian governments. Thus, you had some regimes uh, during the Cold War that were allied with the Soviet Union or even heavily dependent on the Soviet Union. In the post-Cold War era, the U.S. has gone after uh, dictators that were perceived to be unfriendly to the United States, hostile to U.S. interests. Uh, Saddam Hussein of Iraq, after his falling out, with the United States, and people like Bashar Assad in Syria and Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. So there's a tendency on the part of some officials, and especially uh, observers in the American news media, to portray these people in idealistic terms, like they are crusaders for Western-style democracy, and the overwhelming majority were nothing of the sort. They were often very corrupt and and highly authoritarian. And wh what about the double standards? Uh, you know, America tells the world that, for example, we need to currently we need to get rid of the Syrian regime, but we have our friend uh, Jordan, who is uh, as well authoritarian. You know, th they're great; they can stay. Uh, Iran needs to go, but uh, Saudi Arabia is a great ally. Um, you know, in your book, you say that we need to have as limited as possible a relationship with an authoritarian regime, a sort of ethical pragmatism, and that we shouldn't sugarcoat the nature of our uh, 
allies um, uh, authoritarian nature when it's necessary. But you know, how do we square this circle, this holier than thou attitude, in condemning one country's uh, authoritarian regime while we're supporting another one when it's convenient? That's an excellent question, and I think it does a disservice to America's reputation and to uh, its foreign policy to engage in such double standards. It uh, really reduces the trust that people around the world have in the United States to see U.S. leaders practicing that kind of double standard. And the comparison that you made, uh, the U.S. policy toward Iran and toward Saudi Arabia is a really graphic example. Iran's regime certainly is very repressive, uh, not at all uh, respectful of human rights. But I've written elsewhere that compared to Saudi Arabia, Iran seems almost like a Jeffersonian democracy. As bad as Iran is, and it's quite bad, uh, that that regime uh, shouldn't... Uh, uh, receive any praise, but Saudi Arabia's government is significantly worse. And yet, U.S. officials are perfectly content to have a very close relationship with Riyadh, even while uh, openly favoring the overthrow of the Iranian government. And uh, the U.S. has ended up backing Saudi initiatives in places like Yemen, even where there are no major U.S. interests at stake. The position I've taken is, if you're going to make an alliance with uh, ugly, repressive, authoritarian regimes of any sort, vital American interests need to be really at stake, need to be imperiled, or that kind of association simply is not justified. A much more arm's length relationship is appropriate in that case. And, you know, in his, historically, how often do you think really was uh, the case where we we came to a, a vital uh, instance, apart from, I guess, the World War II? Um, I mean, is it really a, a minority of cases? It would be very uh, much a very small minority of cases. In fact, one is really hard-pressed for examples uh, since World War II where truly vital U.S. interests were imperiled. Uh, American officials and much of the news media that far too casual about uh, forming these alliances, these relationships with repressive regimes and ugly authoritarian movements, and uh, excusing it as though vital American interests are at stake. In the overwhelming majority of cases, U.S. vital interests, and in most cases, not even very important interests, are at stake. This is American power projection, U.S. power um, displays around the world for far lesser interests. And American officials and their apologists in the media have really betrayed American values and in some cases absolutely disgraced this country. And speaking of these uh, American values, that was actually my next question. You know, I was raised as an American with a strong belief in the original American Republican values uh, of liberty and the founding pr uh, principles of non-intervention and no foreign entanglement. 
that's what I was taught in school. And, you know, I, I believed it and I, I still like those ideas. But at times I've been called and others like myself anti-American, which I'm not, you know. And I like to say that I absolutely love the American Republic but I loathe this exceptionalism and bullying of empire that we have today. And you've said in your book that regime change largely, and you've mentioned it now, isn't warranted on geopolitical uh, or moral ground. And so how should we view our foundational American principles in comparison with uh, you know, how far we've gone today, this policy of regime change and bringing liberal democracy to the world? I mean, do we just go back to the start? I think we would be much closer to an effective and moral policy if we did that. Uh, obviously, the world's a very different place now than it was in the late 18th century, early 19th century. But uh, the principles that uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson laid out still have, I think, uh, applicability in almost any era. When Washington said, for example, to avoid permanent alliances because they can entangle the United States in problems that you can't even foresee. Once you establish an alliance that goes on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and more, uh, circumstances change beyond recognition and you can be stuck with obligations that may have made sense at the beginning, but make no sense any longer. Jefferson, I think, put it even better, a good summary that American policy should be that of friendship, honest commerce with all nations, but avoiding entangling alliances with any other country. Peace, commerce, and friendship. These are solid moral values and with rare exceptions, when a particularly lethal threat arises, those can be the foundation of American foreign policy. We've gotten very far away from that. We have helped make the world less safe, and we certainly have made uh, a lot of enemies that we didn't need to make. And yeah, I think everyone should be able to agree on those principles. And I, I wanted to discuss some of your recent articles, uh, I think, on the, on the national interest. You wrote a prescient piece in January before the uh, recent coup attempt in Venezuela. Uh, and, and in your piece, you discussed an agreement, which I believe was made in December between Venezuela and Russia to allow Moscow to host uh, military aircraft in Venezuela. And my personal belief has kind of been, you know, given U.S. interference in Russia's buffer zone and sphere of influence in Eastern Europe uh, and, and the Caucasus with NATO expansion, you know, I would think just objectively then it's only fair for Russia to reciprocate in Latin America. But I would very much agree with you in your article that the U.S. needs to pull away from Russia's sphere, which would then negate the need for Moscow to be poking around in Latin America. And you were talking about this, uh, establishing this Monroe Doctrine again in Latin America. So, you know, what would be a, a fair foreign policy here for all parties? Again, a, a very good question. Uh, I've argued in numerous articles uh, that the United States and its allies triggered 
the second Cold War. And I think it's fair to say that that is uh, taking place at the moment. It's not just occasional tensions. It's a full-blown second Cold War. And the U.S. and its NATO allies provoked that by intruding in Russia's security zone, engaging in a variety of highly unfriendly, provocative acts. I suspect what is happening with Russia's relationship with Venezuela, its relationship with Nicaragua, its uh, revival of its uh, ties with Cuba, that's payback. They are now interfering in America's security zone, its sphere of influence. And the U.S. needs to take the initiative to back off, to uh, give assurances we're not going to try to add countries like Georgia and Ukraine to NATO. Uh, we are not going to um, enhance NATO military exercises on Russia's borders. So there, there are steps that can be taken to repair relations with Moscow. And in exchange, the understanding that Russia needs to back off from its growing military uh, arrangements in portions of Latin America. And this gets back to the original understanding of the Monroe Doctrine. It wasn't a U.S. policy to try to run the internal affairs of all countries in Latin America. That takes place much later after uh, Monroe Doctrine's proclaimed in 1821. It's not really until you get to the Theodore Roosevelt administration in the early 1900s that the U.S. starts meddling in the internal affairs of countries in Latin America. We need to get back to the original understanding of the Monroe Doctrine. Namely, we will not tolerate outside powers, be it Russia, China, or anybody else, setting up client states, military client states, in the Western Hemisphere. But beyond that, it should be a hands-off policy regarding the internal affairs of our hemispheric neighbors. And recently, Colombia became uh, the first NATO global partner in Latin America. And President Trump uh, just recently uh, mentioned uh, having Brazil join NATO. So what do you make of this NATO expansion now for the first time ever in the Americas? If that continues, uh, the notion of NATO having any kind of geographic focus becomes nonsensical. It really does become global. And that is um, agitating some of the European members of NATO. Even when NATO began to go out of area in the late 1990s, uh, most notably with the initial missions in the Balkans, and there was talk of NATO being a force uh, to enforce Western interests and values in the Middle East and elsewhere, there was some pushback from uh, European members who said, no, you know, this is supposed to be an alliance to defend the transatlantic uh, region, uh, North America and Europe. It's not supposed to be global. Well, this geographic focus seems to have faded very badly. And again, if we start adding countries in Latin America, uh, the notion of this being a U.S.-European alliance is obviously obsolete, and that's not really in the best interest of either party. 
And that brings me to my next question, which is uh, about another piece that you wrote recently. Um, we see the U.S. and Europe diverging somewhat on NATO. There's trouble there. Uh, the EU as well is creating a European defense force, or they some of the states uh, desire that. Where do you see the disagreements between Brussels and Washington over NATO going? And might we see a future EU army uh, complement or even supplant NATO? On the latter point, I think the prospect of a European Union army is... Uh, growing more likely. And it's no longer just France, who is always the typical NATO maverick pushing that idea. It's getting more and more allegiance. In part, this is because of some doubt, given President Trump's rhetoric on NATO, that the U.S. is still serious about um, honoring all of its NATO obligations. If you take a look at the U.S., military deployments in Europe, again, hostile to Russia, uh, doesn't look like there's much substantive change, but the Europeans are becoming uneasy about it. There's also the sense, and I think this is even more important, that European interests and U.S. interests are less and less compatible. Yes, they overlap, no question about that. But you don't want to see, the Europeans certainly do not want to become involved in conflicts in Latin America. They don't want more um, conflicts in the Middle East that drag them into involvement or Central Asia. So the sense is that Europe has its own interests distinct from the interests of the United States and that Europe needs a security mechanism of its own to defend those interests. Now, Will that eventually supplant NATO? Do the Europeans want it to supplant NATO or complement it? I would say at the moment, it's mainly to complement it. But the prospect of it eventually becoming a distinct separate security identity for Europe and that a Europeans-only security organization to defend European interests uh, becomes more probable than not. And I think we're seeing the early stages of this trend. Be very interesting to see where we're at five or 10 years from now. But I think the tensions within the NATO alliance are growing on multiple levels, different interests, and also different uh, political values, uh, distinct authoritarian trends in some of the European NATO members and the U.S being rather unhappy about that. And I'd like to jump to another part of the world, North Korea. You've been writing about that uh, as well. And before the latest meeting in, in Vietnam with uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, you, you kind of made a guess at what would happen. And uh, you wrote that not much. And I think that's <laughs> you predicted that would happen. And, you know, there are people like U.S. presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard has often said, and I, I believe rightly so, that the only reason North Korea has nukes is as an insurance policy that we've seen what U.S. foreign policy has done to countries that don't have nukes or that don't have a strong security arrangement, such as Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and so on. And this is precisely what you said in a, rec in a recent piece on national interest. North Korea's complete 
verifiable and irreversible denuclearization remains a long shot proposition at best. It would require a degree of mutual trust that does not exist now and not likely in the foreseeable future. And Washington's duplicitous behavior toward Libya and Iran following agreements on their nuclear programs has hardly encouraged such trust. So couldn't Washington just start treating DPRK normally and build relations while letting them keep their nukes? What are your thoughts on North Korea? I think that's probably the best strategy that's available at the moment. Try to normalize relations with Pyongyang. Um, We don't have to like that government. There's certainly not much to like about it. Uh, But We've had normal relationships with a lot of ugly regimes really over over many, many decades. Generally speaking, until uh, early in the 20th century, we didn't even apply moral standards to countries with which we had diplomatic relations. It was just if a government was in charge of a country, the U.S. recognized it, dealt with it. And I think we need to return to a policy that is akin to that. I don't believe ultimately that North Korea will give up its nuclear arsenal, and it does have a small arsenal already. I best the U.S. can get at this point, I think, are uh, agreements or understandings about the limits to the size of the arsenal and the capabilities of the delivery systems. And understandably, the U.S. does not want North Korea with a capability of striking the American homeland with nuclear weapons. It's very much in our interest to try to prevent that. But until we have a normal diplomatic and economic relationship with North Korea, Uh, We're not going to make much progress. If we keep insisting on a complete denuclearization and, as John Bolton has emphasized, the implementation of that before any sanctions are lifted, that's a non-starter. We will be in a very hostile relationship with North Korea indefinitely, and that's if we're lucky, if it doesn't explode into full-scale war. So this is not an intelligence strategy that we have been pursuing over the years. I mean, this is nothing new, really, with the Trump administration. We've had an impasse with North Korea for decades. And if we want to reduce tensions in that part of the world, that needs to change. And looking at the the two books that you wrote, So Perilous Partners and Gullible Superpower, what is your feeling coming away from that research regarding Washington policymakers, uh, decision makers in terms of foreign policy that, you know, are you think uh, more than 50 percent, a majority are n- naive and gullible and they believe uh, kind of in what they're doing in this bringing, you know, this city upon a hill, bringing uh, this light to the world, liberal democracy? Or do you see more, um, you know, the, uh, a cynical perspective that they know exactly what, what they're getting into? I would say it's a split. Um, with some political leaders, I would say certainly with Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and oddly enough, George W. Bush, there was more an honest naivete than cynical power politics. 
underlying the kind of uh, policies they pursued. Um, in much of the American news media, there was a shocking degree of naivete, and that continues to this day. If you look at military planners, some of the uh, professional foreign policy types, the Henry Kissingers, the John Boltons, the uh, Dick Cheney's of the world, I think their motives were overwhelmingly cynical. I don't believe that they bought into much of the rhetoric about freedom and democracy at all. But I don't think you can generalize. Both motives are present with some officials and their their media allies, analysts. Uh, the naivete is a fairly strong component. With other officials especially, there is mainly cynicism that governs their views. And in the near term, where do you feel foreign, uh, U.S. foreign policy going, whether in a better direction or, or not? We've had, you know, Ron Paul and Rand Paul fight, I think, for a better foreign policy. We see Tulsi Gabbard now on the, on the Democratic side uh, attempting this, but she's already having difficulty in the media. And it seems Trump at times has attempted to limit uh, U.S. foreign policy, but then, you know, Bolton and Pompeo uh, push forward. So what are your thoughts there? I wish I were more optimistic, but uh, I think the voices for a much more sensible and principled U.S. foreign policy are still very much in the minority. Uh, they're more numerous than they were, say, a decade or so ago. Uh, much of that is because of public disillusionment with the, the policies the U.S. has been pursuing. And particularly, the public had been stampeded into the war on terror and all the uh, conflicts that have erupted or expanded because of that. And the public is clearly war-weary. But I have never seen a gap between official U.S. policy and the dominant view in the foreign policy community and the opinions and desires of the American general public, as we see now. This is, without a doubt, a political and policy elite that is completely out of touch with the public. And I don't know how long that can go on before there is a, a revolt against that kind of policy. The kinds of conflicts that the U.S. government has been fighting has managed to keep the main impact uh, limited or hidden from the public. But if we get involved in larger-scale conflicts, I think you're going to see the discontent that already exists really become vocal and potent. And if politicians continue to uh, support and defend the current policy, one would think at some point a number of those people are going to be voted out of office quite emphatically. And one can hope that's the case because this is supposed to be a functioning democratic system. That means the government should be implementing policies based on the wishes of the public. 
And that definitely is not the case at the moment with regard to most aspects of U.S. foreign policy. You know, you're right. That is a pessimistic view. I would agree with you. I would also call it a realistic view. Uh, and then I would say that there's a real opportunity here for uh, U.S. citizens, Americans, and others to to speak up uh, and and you know do what we've always historically done is you know change change the course of, of history for the better. Uh, and um, we'll leave it there, Dr. Carpenter. Thank you for the interview and the great books and research you frequently publish at the Cato Institute, the National Interest, uh, and elsewhere, I believe, the American Conservative. I hope your work helps shape U.S. foreign policy for the better. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.